Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Today, we are chatting about stress-induced insomnia, behavior change, and resilient nutrition with Greg Potter. Let's go back to 2019. Greg Potter, Chrono Nutrition, one of my top 10 most downloaded episodes of the year and actually in the history of the podcast. I guess you guys like talking about sleep, time-restricted feeding, and of course, nutrition. So I have to double down on my winners, and I brought Greg back on the show today to discuss stress-induced insomnia and what to do about it. Hey, entrepreneurs, executives out there, I'm looking after you. Greg Potter, PhD. His work at the University of Leeds on sleep, diet, and metabolic health has been featured all around the world by the likes of BBC World Service, Washington Post, and Reuters. Greg has his bachelor's and master's in exercise physiology from a school that no American can really pronounce called Lothborough University, where he coached a sprinter to four gold medals at the European Championships. So he has practical experience as well. Greg has also worked with groups such as the United States Naval Service Special Warfare Command on health and performance optimization, and he is now the Chief Scientific Officer for Resilient Nutrition. You can guess what we get into when I said stress-induced insomnia. We talk about how the current COVID crisis is impacting people's sleep, what you can do about it, and perhaps a lot of action tips for you guys today. At the end, Greg talks about his new startup, Resilient Nutrition, and why it is going to change the endurance nutrition world. You can find all the show notes for this one at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Greg2. Shout out to Lynn Richard for today's five-star review. Listen to learn. Love Decoding Superhumans. Boomer brings on some of the leading experts in human optimization. I've been following the quantified self movement for quite a long time now, and Boomer provides some of the highest quality content in this space. Lynn Richard, thank you so much for the review. And look, if the podcast grabs you in a good way, guys, head on over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts as it's called now and leave a five-star review. It only takes a couple of seconds and it really, really helps the podcast. It helps me, puts a smile on my face, and who knows, I'll probably read yours very soon. Greg Potter and Allie McDonald have done a fantastic job of tackling the endurance nutrition space. I remember when I was going back to run the Brussels Marathon and I was looking at the options for fueling during the race. I was surprised by the lack of, well, real food, but also things that supported me during my run. Enter Resilient Nutrition. Allie and Greg have developed a formulation which is called Long Range Fuel, and there's several choices for you, which now I use for everything from cognitive endurance to my physical endurance when I decide to go out for a little bit of a trot around Amsterdam. You can head on over to resilientnutrition.com and get yours today because, damn, they taste so freaking good. Let's get on with the show. (laughs) 
Greg, welcome back. Hey, Boomer, good to be back. So uh, before we can jump into this, what's your go-to beverage first thing in the morning? It depends on whether it is a caffeinated day or not. If it is, generally default to coffee at the moment, which is interesting because I was never a coffee drinker until 2019. And my current girlfriend is apparently a bad influence because now (laughs) I can't help but find the stuff quite addictive. But my favorite drink for its effects on how my brain works is normally cocoa. And I think I've shared that with you previously and you've been dabbling with cocoa yourself. Yeah, a little too much. That's one of the things that you've introduced me to that I would classify in the addictions category. So that's a very handy beverage first thing in the morning. Actually, it's sometimes my first meal. Yeah, and ironically, a lot of people have historically consumed it late in the evening, but cocoa is quite concentrated in many methylxanthines, including caffeine. So it's probably not the ideal time of day at which to consume it. Yeah, it doesn't seem like something I would want to consume after dinner. It's quite stimulating. All right, so speaking of stimulating, we're in this period of history now called COVID-19, and a lot of people as a result of this are struggling with essentials like sleep. So I thought it was a good time to have you back on the show to talk about this. And when it comes to COVID-19, what are some of the things that you're hearing that people are going through as it relates to sleep? Well, I think there are really two different categories to consider. One is how sleep itself has changed. And a lot of people will have experienced so-called COVID-19 dreams. And basically, people are experiencing very long and vivid and intense dreams. And I think the reasons for that are probably twofold. One is just that whereas a lot of people previously would have been waking to alarms, now people have more control over their schedules. So they're more likely to get more complete sleep. And because REM sleep, which is the stage of sleep in which people dream predominantly, occurs later in the sleep period, people who sleep in longer are more likely to awake from that stage of sleep, which means they're more likely to remember their dreams. But then the other reason people might be dreaming more is that REM sleep seems to be especially important to emotion regulation and making sense of our current circumstances. And given that it's such a testing time for a lot of people, I think that might influence the salience of dreams. And then the other category is COVID-19 induced sleep disruption. People are quite stressed at the moment and that can relate to several different things. So one is there's lots of negative news. One would be their personal circumstances. So maybe for example, people have kids, which is posing lots of difficulties at the moment. Another might be bereavement. So people will have been directly affected by the pandemic itself. But then there are changes in our behaviors too. So during social isolation or sheltering in place, people might be exposed to less light, for instance, which could affect sleep. People might be drinking more alcohol than previously. And people are 
it seems exercising less too, which will also affect sleep. And all of this is a problem, of course, because sleep is so important to immune function. Mm -hmm. So along these lines, I just want to double click on a few of these items because uh, social isolation in general uh, and this idea, you know, you and I are kind of shelter in place with our significant others, but uh, other people that are social isolation by themselves, how does this kind of, what are the knock-on effects there with sleep? Is it just, you know, I'm lonely, so I don't sleep or I'm lonely and I play video games all day long kind of situation? So it's, it's probably twofold. And I think social isolation itself is, of course, bad for health. And there have been numerous meta-analyses showing that in recent years. It seems that loneliness and living by oneself, for example, are associated with something like a 30% increased risk of dying from any cause in years to come. So that's one consideration but there has been a little bit of work recently showing that the amount of social support that people have does have a bearing on their sleep during this pandemic so specifically there was some work published on medical staff working in Wuhan who were treating patients with COVID-19 in the first two months of the year and basically they found that the staff who had greater social support were more likely to experience higher quality sleep and they were less likely to be anxious and overly stressed. Mm-hmm. So there's potentially some direct effect there. But then, as you say, if people are stuck inside and they are perhaps abusing stimulants, consuming more alcohol and not spending lots of time outdoors during the day, but also spending lots of time at night, maybe consuming negative news late in the evening, maybe using devices late in the evening, then those things will tend to disrupt sleep too. Mm -hmm. In our conversations, you're always really good about the tactical elements here in in terms of people, what people can do uh, during periods like this, but just to better their sleep in general. Uh, When it comes to COVID-19, what do you find yourself tracking and what do you generally recommend uh, other people track in order to just kind of keep an eye on their own health and potentially their own sleep? Yeah, so I guess I'll split that into one would be tracking sleep and the other would be tracking health in general. With respect to tracking sleep, lots of people now use wearable devices. I'm sure many of the listeners use these too. And I think these are really helpful for tracking things like step count. However, for tracking sleep, I'm not so convinced that they're helpful. And I think that people can read too much into the data they get from their devices to the point at which that can become problematic. So when it comes to tracking sleep, which is something that I recommend that most people do periodically for a couple of weeks at a time, using sleep diaries makes a lot of sense. And there are lots of ones that are available out there. My favorite is actually the Sleepio app. Sleepio is an online cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia program, which is available for free to people in some UK postcodes, but otherwise people would probably have to pay to get access to Sleepio. And you only get access to the app if you have access to the program. So that rules it out for lots of people, but I do like that. However, If somebody can't access Sleepio, then 
I really like the Consensus Sleep Diary. And there's a version of that that's available at thebettersleepproject.com. And the reason I like sleep diaries is that it's not just sleep duration, for example, that's important to sleep health. Sleep health is dependent on several dimensions of sleep. So one is how long you sleep. One is the timing of your sleep. If you try and sleep at the wrong, in inverted commas, time of your biological day, then you'll find it hard to sleep well. And shift workers will have experienced this, of course, if they try and sleep during their biological daytimes, their sleep quality will be much lower and they'll feel like their sleep is less restorative. Then there is sleep quality, of course. And that's something which is difficult to measure objectively. And I think that both more objective measures of sleep quality, which include things like sleep efficiency, which is the proportion of your time in bed that you're actually asleep, as well as subjective measures of sleep quality are important. And then there is the variability of your sleep. So specifically when the timing of people's sleep shifts from one day to the next, the greater the degree to which that happens, the more likely they are to experience some negative health outcomes. And the reason I mention all of that is that whereas the sleep trackers of the world, so smart rings and smartwatch and so on, are quite useful for assessing sleep duration and seem to do so quite accurately, they might not be so good at assessing sleep quality and sleep variability and sleep timing. So they, they will, of course, assess things like sleep timing well, but the question is whether they display that information in a way which is useful and in a way that helps people sleep better. And I say this all with a caveat, which is that it's really hard to judge how effective these devices are right now because the manufacturers are always updating their algorithms and so on. And I'm confident that these devices are getting better and better and are ever more likely to help people with their sleep. But I just wanted to make it clear that in clinical practice, when people are trying to help individuals with insomnia sleep better or individuals with other sleep disorders sleep better, practitioners will still typically default to using sleep diaries first and foremost. Mm -hmm. So that's a long way of saying that I think using a sleep diary to track sleep for a couple of weeks at a time is a good way to go for lots of people. If somebody's acutely or chronically experiencing insomnia, then they might need to track sleep more frequently. So that would be a quick response to the sleep question. In terms of general health, however, I think there are different ways to think about this. So one is you can track behaviors and you can track outcomes. And I think it's useful to track behaviors first and foremost. And the reason is that you can control those, whereas you can influence outcomes, but you can't control them directly. With respect to behaviors, I think that there are very obvious things that people should track if their health is important to them. If you're a smoker, then given that smoking is an exceptionally strong predictor of disease risk, I think tracking smoking makes a lot of sense. I think for everybody, tracking their step count, provided that I'm, this person can walk, is a really useful thing to track. And I think wearable devices, especially wrist-worn wearables, so things like Garmin's and Fitbit's, mm -hmm. are very good at estimating step counts. And I also think that for everyone, 
tracking their diet at least once is a useful thing to do just because a lot of people don't really have a good idea of what the nutrient composition or the timing of their diet is. And it can be quite an illuminating exercise to just track diet, which you could do using something like MyFitnessPal for a week. When people track diet in research settings, they might keep a three-day food diary, something like that, which would typically include a weekend day because people often eat slightly differently at the weekend. Mm -hmm. Then I would say that tracking your values as funny as that might sound, is a really smart thing to do. Ooh, and there's elaborate a, on that one. That's that's very interesting. Yeah. So this is something I think I've only fully appreciated in the last couple of years. But I think breaking down your life by different dimensions of it. So you could, for example, break it down into your social relationships and your romantic relationships and your work and so on. And then assessing the degree to which you want to focus on a given dimension at your current stage of life and how well you feel you're doing in each of those different dimensions can help you identify what you're most likely to benefit from changing in your life and there are some simple exercises out there. So Tobias Lundgren, for example, has the bullseye exercise, which you might be familiar with, but mm-hmm. you can easily find that online if you just search Lundgren bullseye exercise. And that will take you through identifying your values and whether you're living in accordance or discordance with them at the moment. And then I'd also say that it's probably worth monitoring certain things that are more relevant now during the current pandemic. So for example, you could monitor certain social interactions. So if if it's important to you to be in touch with loved ones, then you could simply keep track of how frequently you call loved ones, for example. And you could also monitor things like how often you go to shops if you're trying to be a good citizen and minimize your exposure to the virus as well as the likelihood of you spreading it around. So those are some of the behaviors that I would say are worth tracking. Mm. But then there are lots of outcomes, of course, too. And I don't know, Boomer, if you want to jump in at the end of the behaviors or... No, 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 this is perfectly fine. I think there's one thing, I guess this kind of dovetails more into outcomes and maybe we'll get into it, but I found in my own life just kind of having a scale nearby to make sure that I don't go off the and put on the COVID-15, so to speak, uh, (laughs) has been very useful. But let's talk about Mm. outcomes. I I would love to hear more about that. Yeah. And the scale is interesting because it could really fall into both categories and uh, it's a behavior, but it gives you an outcome. Mm -hmm. So I, I completely agree with that. And I'd say tracking weight probably a couple of times a week for people trying to maintain similar weighing conditions. So preferably weighing first thing in the morning after going to the toilet without any clothes on is a really useful thing to do. And then there are some other anthropometric measures that people might find useful. So simply measuring circumferences, waist circumference, for instance, as well as maybe upper arm, thigh, calf, shoulder, chest, possibly glute will basically give you an idea of whether changes in your body weight 
correspond to changes in your fat mass or your fat free mass. So if your body weight is going up, but your waist measure is going down, then it's probably fair to assume that you're gaining muscle and losing fat. Mm -hmm. So I think those are useful. When I think about this question of what to track with respect to health, I generally try and default to looking at studies that have in an untargeted way, looked at the different predictors of risk of dying from any cause. Mm -hmm. There was a nice study published about five years ago by some Swedish researchers, and they took the UK biobank data, which is a very rich data set containing lots of health and behavior information about people in the UK, and they did this analysis in which they tried to assess what the strongest predictors of all-cause mortality were. And interestingly, about the strongest predictor was just self-reported health, which was assessed using a really rudimentary question. So simply measuring self-reported health using a standardized questionnaire, perhaps every month to every six months is a really useful thing to track. And there are lots of different questionnaires people could use, but I like the WHO5 and the SF12 questionnaires, both of which you can find online for free. Then I would say, if you look at that particular data set, other things pop out as being useful. I think resting pulse rate, which you can assess using a wearable, is a useful measure to track. If you have a blood pressure monitor, then hypertension potently increases risk of dying from any cause. So I definitely look to monitor that, but it's less relevant if you know that your blood pressure is relatively good. So if if you're young and healthy, for example. And then there are some other measures which people might consider performance measures, but which are very much health measures too. So I think assessing physical function is really important. And you could look at strength fitness. There are lots of different categories of that you can look at depending on where you're looking along the force velocity spectrum and also how that ties into endurance along that spectrum. And then there are different movement patterns. And then you can look at those different things, both in absolute terms, but also relative to how heavy someone is. So you could look, for example, at maximal strength, Mm -hmm. which is an absolute measure. So how much can you bench press Mm -hmm. once? But you could also look at relative strength, which would be how much do you bench press relative to your body weight? And I think relative strength for function is especially important. And you see this in elderly people when they start to find it difficult to simply lift their body weight, all of a sudden they're faced with mobility restrictions, which can be critical to their ability to live by themselves and also critical to their risk of passing away prematurely. So I think measures of relative strength are particularly helpful, and it depends on how strong somebody is as to which of these is most important to assess. But if you're a young person, for example, then maybe you look at something like how many strict pull-ups or chin-ups you can do. Mm -hmm. If you are quite heavy and you want to assess your leg strength, then maybe using something simple like body weight split squats and the number of reps that you can do in that exercise would tell you a lot about that particular metric. So it's difficult to give standardized recommendations for that, but I think strength and relative strength are very important to track. Mm -hmm. And there's cardiorespiratory fitness. So people often 
look specifically at VO2 max when assessing this. And to get an accurate VO2 max test, you need laboratory equipment, but you can approximate VO2 max using some simple at-home measures. So, Mm -hmm. for example, the Cooper test, which is basically a test of how far you can walk or run in 12 minutes, is quite a strong predictor of VO2 max. I think occasionally using that, whether it's every six months or so, or every year, is a useful thing to track because, again, it's strongly predictive of risk of various diseases and risk of passing away from any cause. And then there are more invasive measures, which I think are very illuminating at certain times. So blood tests specifically mm-hmm. have been very well studied. We know how to interpret those data. We know how to act on them. And there are lots of different things that you can look at, but simple measures like full blood counts and liver function tests, blood lipids, blood glucose, electrolytes, and then possibly certain hormones and some inflammatory markers can be very telling. And then finally, in addition to those, which I would say can all be helpful for pretty much everybody, there are person-specific things that I would track too, depending on what somebody's health history is. So let's say, for example, that someone has previously been diagnosed with depression, mm-hmm. then that person might use something like the Beck Depression Inventory to assess how their symptoms are changing over time. And then there are also certain physical performance outcomes that people might track depending on what their interests are. So if you're a strength athlete, for instance, then maybe you would occasionally want to track your front squat one rep max. Mm -hmm. So that, that I think overviews the main things that I would recommend that most people track. There are additional things, Mm -hmm. but they are more esoteric and, I'd be less likely to recommend those. I'd just use them in very specific circumstances. Okay. So you gave us a shitload to do there, Greg. Now (laughs) I I just, if I were to take like three markers out of all of that, Mm -hmm. three to five, which ones would you focus on that people can do on an everyday basis at their home? Well, I I wouldn't recommend tracking any of them on an everyday basis necessarily, but I know that you're saying that the one that I would recommend tracking on a daily basis, but just monitoring the trend over time, especially at the moment, is step count. Mm -hmm. If I was giving two to four other items, then I would say self-reported health would be one of them. Then I would probably say that a measure of physical performance would be in there. Mm -hmm. And I know that something like the Cooper test isn't so practical for lots of people to assess. So I'd probably use a measure of relative strength and that would depend on the person. If you're young and fit, I'd probably use strict dead hang pull-ups or Mm chin-ups. If your shoulders and upper limbs are healthy, if, if you were heavier, for example, and you wanted to assess your upper body strength, then maybe you would do something like a push-up from the knees. Mm -hmm. The important thing, of course, is to standardize the conditions in which you assess these. So you want to assess them at the same time of day under the same feeding circumstances. So Mm -hmm. maybe it's after breakfast, for instance, just to try and make sure that your tracking is as accurate as possible and not confounded by changes and some confounding variables that could influence the results. So I think, I think, if it was just two or three things, it'd probably be step count, self-reported health, 
and a measure of physical function. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'm, I'm going to add one more in there, and that would be body weight. Mm-hmm. All right. So for those out there who want to just geek out on all the things that Greg just mentioned in terms of measurement, I'm going to link to all of this in the show notes. But Greg, let's talk about, so if you're suffering from anxiety-induced insomnia, or let's say you just have sleep issues in general around this whole concept of COVID-19, are we just screwed or what can people do to kind of mitigate some of these issues, what should people be doing in terms of both behavior change? But I know you and I have talked about um, potential nutrient add-ons. Would love to get into some of those. Mm. So first thing I'll say is that it is possible for people to sleep better than they were previously during this pandemic because we have more control over our schedules. And I'm speaking very general terms, of course, most people are better able to sleep in alignment with their chronotypes or whether they're more of an early bird or a night owl. And most people's lifestyles are a bit more regular at the moment than they once were. And both of those things are conducive to sleeping well. So I just want to preempt my answer by saying that I could give you a very long answer to this one, Boomer. So just interrupt me whenever. I will, I will cut you off if you go too long, but I'm sure people want to know. Okay. So I guess the the first place to start would be to identify whether somebody has any clinical sleep issues. And there are some simple questionnaires out there which will give you some idea of that. I like a questionnaire called the Sleep 50 questionnaire, which is very easy to score. And if that questionnaire flags that you might have a frank sleep disorder, then you can get in touch with a practitioner about that and seek some more personalized guidance. But If we assume that someone is experiencing some sort of transient insomnia, probably related to stress during this pandemic, then I think there are lots of things that you can do, and and I'll dive into some of those now. Mm -hmm. So one, as I said, is you want to begin by tracking your sleep to work out how well you're sleeping at the moment. And I'd say keep a sleep diary for a couple of weeks. And to make it easy to keep that sleep diary, keep it early in the morning and maybe pair it with your breakfast so that you ingrain that particular habit. With respect to improving sleep, one perhaps counterintuitive thing for people to apply is to avoid napping. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that even a brief nap can pay off some of the pressure to sleep that's accumulated with prior wakefulness. And as a result of that, when people try and sleep that evening, they'll maybe find it harder to fall asleep and they'll find that their sleep is more likely to break up in the night and it's less deep and it's less restorative. So I'd say if you're struggling to sleep well, then avoid napping during the day. I think at the moment, it's very important to moderate news intake and there are lots of different dimensions of that, of course. There's how long you expose yourself to the news for. There's the quality of the news that you expose yourself to. And I think for COVID-19 related information, the Johns Hopkins Resource Center is the one that I would generally recommend to people. Mm -hmm. And obviously you don't want to be out of touch with what's going on in the world. So as a heuristic, I would say maybe cap your news intake at 15 minutes or so per day and do so in the first half of your waking day. So you don't want to be up 
late at night looking at the news intake if it's going to make you stressed and thereby perhaps interfere with your sleep with respect to exercise at the moment a lot of people are less physically active than they were and fitbit published a blog about this back in march which was interesting and they basically found if you look at european countries then people were taking between seven percent and 38 percent fewer steps during the week ending March 22nd relative to the same week in 2019. And for that reason, I think keeping an activity monitor and being aware of your step count is really helpful. Exercise is, of course, very important to immune function. And as a researcher named David Neiman, who came up with a somewhat controversial hypothesis, which basically describes the relationship between exercise and risk of acquiring upper respiratory tract infections, and he basically plotted risk of infection on the y-axis and then the amount of exercise on the x-axis and drew it out as a j-shaped curve so if you take someone who's completely sedentary and you have them engage in moderate activity then they're less likely to, to develop infections but then if they do too much exercise then eventually they become more likely to get an infection than someone who's completely sedentary. Mm -hmm. So I think an appropriate dose of exercise is key to immune function, but exercise is, of course, key to sleeping well too. And because exercise influences sleep, it's probably sleep is probably one of the mediating factors between exercise and how well our immune systems work. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is if, if you're trying to increase your physical activity, but you have to exercise while you're at home because the gym is shut or whatever, then designate a space in your home specifically for exercise and nothing else. And you'll thereby find it easier to engage in exercise when you're in that space. I'd say, if possible, intersperse exercise throughout your day in the form of so-called exercise snacks. So you could do a few reps of a body weight exercise between meals, for example, and this doesn't have to be anything too strenuous. When people do relatively low intensity exercise, they tend to experience quite dramatic improvements in their metabolic regulation after eating meals. And I think in terms of the content of exercise, there's a strong rationale to think that people who have higher cardiorespiratory fitness, so VO2 max or something similar to that, are less likely to experience severe consequences as a result of contracting COVID-19 mm -hmm. because COVID-19 is first and foremost the respiratory syndrome. Mm -hmm. So I think doing some cardiorespiratory fitness training once a week for someone who doesn't do any of that at the moment, if not more frequently than that, is probably a really smart thing to do. And the tricky thing, of course, is that exercising at home is not something that many people are used to. Mm -hmm. So if it's possible to do things to increase accountability, then that's likely to be beneficial. And one way to go about this is scheduling group exercises online. Mm -hmm. And then you, you get the benefits of social interaction that way too. And that can be something like a body weight session done over Zoom with some friends. Lots of people are doing yoga online too at the moment. I have some reservations about lots of yoga postures, but that's a conversation for another day. 
Uh oh, we're getting affected. <laughs> what about what about timing on exercise in general? Like, should we be having this earlier in our circadian day or later? Because I know later there's a little bit of potential for disrupting sleep, right? Yeah, there is, and there's been some work on that, which has been brought together in a so-called meta-analysis which is a study that assesses all of the studies that have been published on that topic to date and then weights them according to the quality of the studies and that particular meta-analysis found that exercise later in the day actually has relatively little influence on sleep but it depends on things like the content of exercise if you're doing low intensity exercise 90 minutes before bed for 15 minutes and it's not a brightly lit room and you're not listening to really loud music, then I don't think that would influence your sleep much. Mm-hmm. But if you were in the gym, slinging iron, under bright lights, listening to heavy metal an hour before your bedtime, then that's probably not what you want to be doing if you want to sleep well. Mm-hmm. So I think it depends on why you're exercising, but in general finishing exercise at least three hours before your planned bedtime and starting exercise at least an hour after waking up both make sense the reason i say an hour after waking up is really twofold so one is that the cardiovascular system tends to be more reactive to exercise induced stress in the early morning so if you look for example at heart rate responses and blood pressure responses to exercise then they're accentuated early in the day The other reason is that the spine specifically might be more at risk of injury early in the day. Mm -hmm. During the overnight period, while people unload their spines while lying supine, Mm -hmm. they tend to experience an increase in the hydration of their discs, the discs between their vertebrae. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that you then take the spine's end range of motion, especially under load, then the discs are more likely to herniate mm-hmm. early in the day when they're pumped up like balloons. Mm-hmm. So I'd say provided that the exercise is between an hour after waking and maybe three or four hours before bedtime, you're probably okay. If you're trying to maximize your exercise performance, then doing strength and power exercise a bit later in the day is probably ideal. The best time of day to do endurance exercise is less clear and it's quite dependent on the particular person. But I think in general, for most people, for general health, spacing exercise relatively evenly throughout the day and preferably doing it outside if possible makes a lot of sense because if you do it outside, then you also get the beneficial effects of light exposure. Mm-hmm. And we know that light exposure is important to things like mood, cognition, and perhaps even cardiometabolic health too, blood pressure, that mm-hmm. type of thing. And that really brings us to, to light exposure and some of the other things that we could discuss here, Boom. Uh, awesome. So let's let's talk about that light exposure because if you're shelter in place right now, and if light is some of our biggest determinants of that sleep wake cycle, are there ways that people can artificially get this, or is it just best to use that time that you're allowed to go outside and spend twenty minutes in the sun if you live in a sunny area? People spend a lot of time analyzing morning routines. But I would argue that the evening routine is almost as important. And one of the essentials to my evening routines, every other day that is, is the V-Light, 
I have the Neuro Alpha and I find it as an excellent 20 minutes to spend meditating and really just taking my brain into an alpha state, allowing me to relax. Yes, they're not cheap, but they are certainly damn effective and hell, I get better sleep with them. And we're talking about sleep here, so why not? If you head over to vlight.com, that's V-I-E-L-I-G-H-T, and use the code BOOMER, you're going to get 10% off your device. Check it out. Let me know what you think. vlight.com, use the code BOOMER. And let's get back to the discussion on stress-induced insomnia and what the hell you can do about it. I'd rather people got it from spending time outdoors if possible. Mm. But for some people, that's just not practical or it's even forbidden at the moment. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then I would just say that you want to make your rooms as well lit as possible during the day Mm -hmm. and spending your time by a window, preferably with a window open is one way to go about that. If that's tricky for whatever reason, then using a light therapy lamp could be useful. Mm -hmm. It's typically been studied in the context of seasonal affective disorder and people who experience that tend to find that their mood improves when they use a light therapy lamp for perhaps 30 minutes or so each day. And you want to get one that emits at least 10,000 lux. And you probably want to be in quite close proximity to it, maybe within a meter or so of it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's helpful. Then there are people who maybe have some space which is exposed to light, but they don't have a garden or something. And I think for those people, eating outside Mm-hmm. is a really smart thing to do at the moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, but at night, we need to regulate our light almost in terms of lux, the opposite direction, right? So rather than 10,000, we want it probably one-tenth that, or is there any sort of guidance that we should follow? Yeah, I, I wouldn't worry too much about specific numbers because okay. it's it's a difficult thing to track. Yeah. But what I would say is that the spectral composition or the color of light is important. hmm and specifically, blue, green, wavelength light will most potently affect your body's clock and the synthesis of melatonin in the brain. And melatonin is the hormone of darkness, if you like, that tells the clocks throughout your body that it's the nighttime and therefore to engage in nighttime activities. Mm-hmm. So minimizing your exposure to that type of light, which can come from very bright indoor lights is a good thing to do. So simply dimming lights within a couple of hours of bedtime makes a lot of sense. I think if you're using a laptop or a phone within that time period, then using a filter on the device makes sense. That could be something like F.Lux if you're using a laptop. Mm -hmm. It could be night shift mode if you're using an iPhone. And then also reducing the brightness settings on devices when possible is a good thing to do. If you don't have much control over some of those factors, then I think wearing blue blocking glasses is likely to achieve many of the same benefits. It's just the question of whether you're comfortable wearing blue blocking glasses and don't feel like too much for Wally. <laughs> well, then you should just label me a Wally. I- <laughs> <laughs> so then I would just say get light emitting devices out of your bedroom if possible if you must have devices that emit light then get ones that emit red light because red light is less disruptive to your body's clocks Mm -hmm. and also it's it's less alerting light has some alerting effects which are independent of the effects of light 
on our body's clocks. Mm -hmm. So I think that makes sense. And that actually brings up another thing to consider. And that is use of devices around the sleep period. And what I would say is that using phones and social media and laptops around the sleep period, so maybe beginning an hour before planned bedtime until natural wake-up time in the morning is something that you definitely want to avoid if you can. And there's an increasingly large body of data showing that device use around the sleep period probably negatively affects sleep. It probably depends on things like the content yeah. that you're exposed to, as well as perhaps some demographic differences between people. But as a rule of thumb, I think not using devices beginning an hour before planned bedtime until wake up time in the morning is a smart thing for people to do. Yeah. And, you know, just for those listening out there, one of the things that was a game changer for me was just avoiding the social media, but also email in particular, because I know there's a lot of people that listen to this that are constantly tied to email and avoiding that email before and at least an hour before bed will certainly help modulate some of that anxiety. But yeah, go ahead. And this, there's been some research specifically looking at what happens when people limit their use of email. And surprise, surprise, it's been shown that when people do so, they tend to experience improved quality of life and improvements in some indices of mental health too. I know that some people need to be responsive. Mm -hmm. But having measures in place to restrict access to emails is something that people can do to make that process easier. And I think batching emails makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm going to ask you for that study later. But uh, along the lines of sleep-related or, sorry, COVID-related anxiety, behavior modifications before bed, in bed, anything in addition that we should add here? We've talked a lot about light, but uh, yeah, you know, journaling seems to be very helpful for some. Mm, there, there are quite a few different things that we could discuss. So with respect to journaling, I think... A lot of people at the moment have lots of worries. And if they're busy during their daytimes, then that busyness can suppress the worries. And then later in their days, what they might find is that when they're less busy, those worries start to bubble up to the surface, which can interfere with their ability to sleep well. And for that reason, scheduling some worry time, preferably in the late afternoon, is a really useful strategy. It's something that's used quite commonly helping people who have insomnia. And one way to go about this is just to keep a thought diary. And in that thought diary, you can just diarize your negative thoughts and your worries, and then also make columns for evidence that supports those worries and their presence and evidence that refutes them. And a lot of people who have sleep problems distort reality when they're considering those sleep problems, they might think, for example, oh, if I don't sleep well, then I'm going to be useless at work tomorrow, when that might not be true. And so the, the goal of this exercise is really to, over time, develop a more accepting stance and to frame those negative thoughts in a more positive light, recognizing that lots of those thoughts aren't necessarily true. And then also, I think, a separate exercise that's very helpful is just making a to-do list for the next day, maybe, maybe an hour or so before bedtime, 
preferably using a physical diary as opposed to a digital one. And in that, you might just list everything that needs to get done the next day in as much detail as is necessary. And this is also a great time to keep a gratitude diary if you're interested in doing that. And there's plenty of evidence showing that that seems to be beneficial for certain measures of mental health. So if you use that strategy, I would say take the diary to your bedside during the sleep period. And then if you realize that you forgot to list something and it's playing on your mind, you can simply jot that down in your diary and then that will probably help you fall back to sleep. And there is evidence showing that that type of to-do listing tends to help people who have insomnia sleep better. So I think diaries are really helpful. And then and then there are a bunch of other strategies that I can touch on if you want, Boone. Yeah, sure. I'd love to hear that, Greg. So some of these relate to just preparing for the sleep period. And I heard a very apt analogy recently, which was that trying to go to bed after a stressful day and just switching off the lights without preparing for bed is a bit like driving along a motorway and then trying to change direction 90 degrees. You, you need to slow down in anticipation of bedtime. And so having a pre-bed relaxation ritual is really important. And there are lots of different things that you can do at this time, but the things that seem to help lots of people include things like listening to relaxing music and possibly doing some fun, but not too stimulating, distracting tasks. You could make a puzzle, something like that, or you could read a book, not a business book. And Boomer at the moment, I'm reading... (laughs) Crossing the chasm, which I have here in front of me. Uh, which, hopefully which hopefully got, not right before bed, right? <laughs> I normally finish about half an hour before, but I, I don't find it so stimulating that it interferes with my sleep. Oh, right. I, I totally disagree with you. I, I find it very <laughs> stimulating, but that's different sides of the spectrum that we sit on. Yeah. So I think those strategies can be helpful. And then there are also some things around the sleep period, which are really important. So one of these, which might be the most important sleep tip for a lot of people listening, is to apply the principle of stimulus control of behavior. And basically among people who are experiencing poor sleep, they have a lot of sleep-related negative thoughts. And what can happen over time is they learn to associate their beds with being awake and being stressed. And so they might find themselves really sleepy towards the end of the day, but then when they get in bed, all of a sudden they're wide awake. And it's this type of conditioned arousal, which can be ruinous for sleep. And what I would say is for those people, it's really important to only go to bed when really sleepy to save the bed for sex and sleep only. And then also if they wake up at night and can't get back to sleep within 15 minutes or so, and I'm, I'm not recommending that people watch the clock or anything like that. I'm just saying if they've been in bed for approximately 15 minutes and they can't get back to sleep, then get out of the bedroom and do something relaxing in a different room, something relaxing and not too stimulating. Could be reading a book, could be doing a meditation. It could be watching a not particularly stimulating but quite fun tv program 
with blue blocking glasses, for example. And whatever you do, you just want to keep the environment as relaxing as possible. So don't switch the lights on full or anything like that. You know, do these things in a dimly lit room. And definitely don't and check your email, right? Don't check your email. Don't check social media and only return to bed when you're sleepy. Mm-hmm. But of course, waking up in the night can be due to lots of different things. And we could we could go into lots of different things here. You know, you've, you've got... Boom, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, let's... So rather than jumping into a few more of these, because we've covered a lot of ground here, I want to talk a little mm. bit more on the nutrients and supplements side of things, because I have the benefits of being able to talk to you about this stuff and some of the uh, esoteric things that I uncover in the vast random parts of the world. But are there things or general guidances we can give people in terms of uh, nutrients or supplements that are supportive of sleep and in particularly sort of anxiety uh, moments or anxiety uh, ridden sleep? Yeah, that are, what I would say is that the quality of this evidence is generally not that high and it's more important to attend to the other behavioral things first. But if somebody has dotted their I's and crossed their T's on the other stuff first, then there are certain supplements that I think can be useful for some people some of the time. And the important thing is to consider somebody's overall phenotype. So not just their sleep, but what else are they struggling with in general? Because the supplemental sleep aids that are available don't just affect sleep, of course. They affect lots of different things. So if somebody's struggling with anxiety, which is affecting their sleep, then the supplements that I think can be helpful include L-theanine. There's a little bit of evidence showing that perhaps two milligram, 200 milligrams of L-theanine might help people feel less anxious and might improve sleep in certain clinical populations. The nice thing about L-theanine is that it has an excellent safety profile and it might have some other benefits, other beneficial effects on cognition. I think maybe 80 to 160 milligrams of lavender, and there's a specific form of lavender named selexin, can be helpful for people who have anxiety. And this doesn't have to be consumed orally. Using lavender aromatherapy seems to have similar effects. I think... Using KSM 66 ashwagandha, which is a standardized form of ashwagandha, can be helpful. And the thing that I like about ashwagandha is that it seems to be beneficial for so many different things. So it seems to support adaptations to strength and power exercise training. It might boost cardiorespiratory fitness. It has some positive effects on metabolic health. In people with mild cognitive impairment, it seems to enhance executive function. For people who aren't very fertile. It seems to improve certain parameters related to fertility. So I think 600 milligrams of KSM 66 ashwagandha with a meal is really helpful for a lot of people. And then I would say of the different sleep aids that are out there, melatonin is probably the most potent, which isn't necessarily a prescription pharmaceutical. 
and melatonin has a really strong safety profile. It's been used for eons and it's used in certain clinical conditions, but for people who are experiencing jet lag, one milligram of wild-time melatonin is really helpful. And my favorite form of that is the Swanton one milligram of melatonin product. For people who just have some difficulty falling asleep at the start of the night, I think 300 milligrams of melatonin and I like the life extension product can be very helpful an hour before bed. For people who are struggling to sleep through the night, perhaps because of anxiety, but also perhaps because of some other issue, two milligrams of time-release melatonin can be helpful. Time-release melatonin has a longer half-life. It's cleared less quickly from the body and thereby help, seems to help sustain sleep through the night. It can be helpful. And there's a version of that named rest well, which is one word with an E on the end, which I think is helpful for lots of people and is widely available online. But of course, there are some countries in which you can only be prescribed melatonin. That's the case in the UK. And if that's the case where you are, then I'd, I'd look to some of the other things first. So those are some of the supplements that I'd mention. And then how nutrition affects sleep is something that needs to be better studied in the future. And I could give you a really long answer about this, but I'd say the key principles are you don't want to go to bed either hungry or full. You probably want to finish your final calorie intake of the day at least two hours before bedtime. You, of course, want to avoid caffeine too late in the day. And as a rule of thumb, I normally say stop consuming any caffeinated items at least nine hours before bedtime. Alcohol is key, of course, and I'm sure I touched on some of this in our previous podcast, mm. but finishing alcohol intake at least four hours before bedtime and preferably capping intake at no more than maybe a couple of units, which is something like a pint of beer or a medium glass of wine mm-hmm. is a good way to go. And then there are some diet composition influences on sleep. So for example, having a high glycemic load carbohydrate at the final meal of the day might help support melatonin synthesis and sleep quality overnight. But there's a trade-off there. Can you just reset and say that? Because that seems counterintuitive to me that like high glycemic index eliciting a higher blood sugar response. I I guess you're going to get to the trade-off, but. Yeah, sure. And that's the reason why it actually might help sleep. But there's been some work showing that when people consume high glycemic load carbs late in the day, they might increase melatonin synthesis in the way that this plausibly works, although there haven't been studies showing that this is the mechanistic basis of it, is that when you consume lots of high glycemic load carbohydrates, your pancreas will synthesize more insulin in response to those. And that insulin will then drive certain amino acids into the muscles So specifically, it will tend to drive the branch chain amino acids into skeletal muscles and thereby support skeletal muscle anabolism, protein synthesis. And what that means is that because there are fewer of those branch chain amino acids in the circulation, there are fewer of those amino acids competing for space on the large neutral amino acid transporter, which shuttles L-tryptophan into the brain. And when you then have more L-tryptophan going into the brain, you have more L-tryptophan available to act as a precursor for melatonin synthesis. And you might thereby synthesize more melatonin and support sleep. The trade-off is that if you look at 
metabolic responses to feeding throughout the day, then as I discussed in the previous podcast, things like oral glucose tolerance tend to be worse earlier and earlier. They tend to be worse later in the day. Mm -hmm. And so while consuming a high glycemic load carbohydrate meal late in the day might be beneficial for certain sleep parameters, it might not be good for other aspects of your health. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, I don't necessarily recommend that as a strategy unless somebody exercises relatively late in the day, in which case I think it makes a lot of sense. So that's how carbohydrate might affect sleep. And then also there are some other foods which have been studied for their effects on sleep. So tart cherry juice, for example, contains some substance phytomelatonin and might thereby affect sleep. Beef tomatoes and kiwi fruits have been shown by a couple of studies to positively affect sleep, but I wouldn't put too much stock in any of those studies. And I would just say that it's more important to attend to diet timing and minimizing caffeine and alcohol intake and consuming those too late in the day, and then making sure you go to bed neither hungry nor full. So if you were to introduce some of these uh, let's say, let's just take, for example, kiwi fruits, because that's something I've played around with in the past. Would you still have those two hours before bedtime? Or is this something that you would, you know, throw down the hatch right before you hopped in the bed? Definitely have them a couple of hours before bedtime still. And there hasn't been a study that's looked at whether the timing of kiwi fruit consumption is important. And of course, we don't really understand the mechanisms by which kiwi fruits might affect sleep. Mm-hmm. And it might be that there are later multiple studies that show that kiwi fruits don't positively affect sleep, or maybe they only affect sleep in a subset of people. So I just wouldn't read into those data too much right now. I, I don't think it's the most important thing to do. But if you want to try it, then I see no harm in doing so. And I'd have them at your final meal of the day and still finish that meal at least two hours before your planned bedtime. Greg, this is incredible. And you've given us just a lot of information around uh, behavior change. And I do want to stress to people that think about the behavior first before going into the nutrients, but then also the nutrients and other ways that we can even look at the data around COVID-19 and be a more informed person. The last thing I want to talk with you about today is something that, uh, well, I alluded to uh, some of the foods you've suggested to me earlier and with relation to cacao in terms of how addicting that can be. Another one that you're involved in is resilient nutrition and these Beyond Nut Butters that I have the pleasure of trying. Can we talk a little bit about that just in closing? Sure. Yeah, very happy to. So, uh, well, first off, how did you get involved with resilient nutrition? And uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the clinically, uh, you know, the clinically significant doses in there. Yeah. So, resilient nutrition is a food and eventually supplement company that my friend and colleague Ali McDonald and I started earlier this year. And I'd been helping Ali for a couple of years with various different projects. And one of the things that we were doing last year was helping two guys get ready to row the Atlantic in the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. And as people might be able to imagine, 
when you're a big, heavy guy and you're rowing round the clock for nearly 40 days, you get through a lot of calories at that time. And so they needed these delicious and calorie dense and easy to digest snacks to support their performance. And of course, ideally, they'd be consuming foods which still supported their health and resilience too. And when we're helping them, we began concocting these prototypes of what eventually became our first product, which you're alluding to, Boom. And the first product is named Long Range Fuel. So we started making these for them. And they then relied on those products during their crossing. And they, they did really well, which is great. And then while we were formulating those products, we started using them ourselves in different contexts and with our friends and some of the athletes that we work with. And we found that they were really helpful both to support physical performance, but also cognitive performance. And so what long range fuel is, is basically a really, really tasty whole food based nut butter, which we've enhanced by the addition of certain nutrients in order to boost your stamina and keep you calm and alert and support your resilience. And this long range fuel product is available in multiple different forms, which really are best suits different times of day, depending on the effects that you want. So for example, we have a form which is, which contains caffeine and caffeine of course enhances numerous aspects of cognitive function as well as physical performance and endurance exercise and intermittent exercise and strength to power exercise. And this form also contains sun theanine, L-theanine, which basically helps people stay calm while consuming the caffeine and helps them cope with stress and might have some cognition enhancing effects too. So it might reduce mind wandering, for example. And I think this particular form is ideal for work and exercise and possibly extended travel too so if someone needs to drive a very long period of time they need to stay vigilant or if they're a pilot then i think it's really useful in those circumstances then we have a form which helps people recover from exercise and also is a very effective meal replacement product and this one contains whey protein isolate and l-leucine and it does so in order to support skeletal muscle regeneration and also to enhance appetite regulation and i think that version is ideal as a meal replacement so if you were heading to the office for a long day at work and you needed a snack to pick up on the go you know you pick up a coffee version containing whey protein isolate and l-leucine that's perfect suited perfectly suited to that particular scenario then we have a more calming version of long range fuel which is ideal later in the day in this version contains KSM 66 ashwagandha, which I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And what's important to note is that all of these products contain clinically proven doses of the best studied forms of these specific ingredients. And there's no rubbish in any of the products. They're all based on mixes of artisan nut butters, no cheap peanut butter or anything like that. And we have different versions that are suited to different people. So most of them are vegan friendly. We have a version formulated specifically for people on keto diets and they're generally well suited to people on paleo diets, although some of them contain dairy protein. So if someone's excluding dairy, then those aren't ideal for them. 
And then we also have four different flavors of them. And I'm biased, but they're all really, really good. They, okay, just to add to that, for those listening, they are ridiculously good. And I've had the pleasure of trying uh, numerous amounts of them. And going back to what you said earlier about work, I find myself lately in days where I'm on back-to-back calls and it's not always conducive, even in this whole shelter in place environment, it's not always conducive to sit down, make a meal, et cetera. And so if you're looking for that meal replacement and something that can really hold you through and keep your brain churning along, this is this is kind of like my ideal knowledge worker food. And so uh, Greg, uh, to you and Ali, thank you for creating this. Oh, pleasure. And it's, it's nice to hear that you find them helpful. I actually had some for breakfast today. So if, if I'm if I'm making any sense, then I'm going to chalk it up to long range fuel. If I'm not making any sense, then I apologize. Where can people find out more about Resilient Nutrition? At resilientnutrition.com. And we also are on social media, which is at Resilient Nuts. And we're on instagram and facebook and linkedin and possibly elsewhere too but i think if people go over to resilientnutrition.com then they'll find everything they need and long range fuel is currently available in the uk but we have designs to subsequently move into other european markets and then over to the us as well beautiful and greg what if people wanted to find out more about you specifically where should they go I am on Instagram, which is at Greg Potter PhD. And I have a website, which is gregpotterphd.com, which I desperately need to update. But you can contact me via either of those and I will eventually get back to you. But resilient nutrition right now is consuming a lot of my time. So if I'm a little bit tardy in doing so, then forgive me. Greg, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been an absolute pleasure as always. And I've got pages and pages of notes to type out now for people. So thank you. <laughs> sorry, sorry to increase your work. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, to all the superhumans listening out there, check out the show notes for this one. Check out Resilient Nutrition. And of course, have an epic day. Thank you. All right, so I have my work cut out for me with these show notes. If you want to head on over to decodingsuperhuman.com slash Greg2, I did my best to really jot down everything that Greg mentioned throughout this podcast. And if you want to check out Resilient Nutrition, head on over to resilientnutrition.com. The discount code that I have is going to be in the show notes and you guys can use it to get yourself some amazing, amazing things that I'll simply describe as way beyond nut butter. Again, show notes on this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash Greg2. Let me know what you learned share it on the Instagrams, on the TikToks. I'm not really there, but you can also share it on LinkedIn where I am. And I want to hear from you guys. So if you love the episode, head on over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating, and I appreciate you all. Have an epic day.